You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Chapter 13, um, in the Old Testament, there's what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. Then there's two books, Joshua and Judges. Uh, and then there's the Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, and Chronicles. Those are what's called, the, those are the books that, that um, are the historical books about the, the kingdom, when Israel was a kingdom. And they're really interesting books. Those six sets, there's one and two of each, but they're... Um, they actually are a fourth of the Bible. So a lot of the Bible deals with what happened when Israel actually was a real kingdom, an independent kingdom. And some of the events of it, if you uh, ever go through, 1 Samuel was about the kingdom before David. 2 Samuel is about David's reign. And then Kings, First and Second Kings are about um, the rest of Israel's history as a monarchy. Um, during that history, they split. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The Chronicles are written basically details, goes into a lot more detail about what happened in the southern kingdom in Judah. Um, but it's, it's a huge stretch of passages, um, really, really interesting thing. But it's a big chunk of the Bible, fourth of the Bible. There are actually more, and I actually this week checked this out with my own Bible. There are actually two pages more of that part of the Bible than the entire New Testament. So it's kind of a good thick uh, thing here. But... Um, let me give you a little background what we're going to talk about today. We've been doing a series on the Old Testament. We've just been having myself and different guest speakers that have been here have looked through particular books and different uh, ways the Old Testament might be speaking to us. One of the wonderful things about the Old Testament, why I encourage you uh, to learn the Old Testament, to read the Old Testament, and read it with some idea of what it's, the context of it is. Its value to us is this, I think one of the great values of it is unlike the New Testament, which was written over about a 40-year period, a very narrow span of time, Christianity was just emerging. Uh, the New Testament is concerned with what Christianity is, what it believes, how it's like Judaism, how it's different from Judaism, how the coming of Christ changed uh, truth and how it affected truth. And it's very doctrinal. It's very much you know, truth axioms. The Old Testament has a lot of stories in it. And, and it stretches a long period of time. There are times when there are stories about rich people and poor people, times of prosperity in the nation, times of poverty, when they went to war, when they had peace. And there's just a, a, a wide range and scope of experiences covered in the stories of the Old Testament. And in some ways, those can relate to us because we all have those same experiences. And the, so when we read the Old Testament, one thing we want to do is kind of find ourselves in the characters and in the stories. Find yourself in their experiences. And just from that experience, uh, you know, just be informed on how to live our lives and how to walk out our faith. Now, we're going to look at a, a story today, which is really kind of a, one of my, this is probably my favorite story in the Bible. And it's probably about who, who many would say is actually the greatest king in the history of Israel, even greater than King David. And the story spans about 300 years. And one thing I love about this story is it addresses 
a very profound topic, and that is the topic of human destiny. The topic of what Forrest Gump wrestled with in the movie Forrest Gump. Remember this movie Forrest Gump? And he goes to his mom and he asks her when she's dying, what does he ask her? Does anybody remember? Mom, mama, do I have a destiny? And what had happened, he had had a friend named Lieutenant Dan who had a destiny. And he told him about his destiny. And, and the whole Forrest Gump story is about this idea of human death. What, what you know, are our lives, what's the meaning behind it? What's the purpose behind it? And, and I think that's a very profound thing for you to wrestle with as a Christian who believes in God, who believes in a creator, who believe you were uh, chosen by that creator for salvation, that he knew you, that he went after you in time and space to make you his own. And to wrestle with this relationship between God's sovereignty in our lives, God's will, and contingency, our will. How do these two factors work together? How does sovereignty and human contingency really work together you know, to bring about outcomes? And, and there's a real tension there. And a lot of times what we do, and when I say we, these are theologians do, is because theologians love axiom statements of truth that are final and concrete and, and boxed up. We, we tend to, to neglect one aspect of this for the other. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, in my experience, when I was uh, a young Christian and I, I was in high school and then in college, I got into an uh, aspect of teaching in the Bible, which we would now call hyper-faith. Hyper-faith. But it was just a, for me, it was just great. It really blessed my life because these guys taught that basically your faith determines things. If you're sick, you want to be healed, it's your faith. You want to see something happen in life, you use your faith and you make it happen. And, and there was literally a book I remember reading written by one of these guys called Writing Your Own Ticket with God. Like how to write your own ticket with God. You just take your faith, you decide what you want to be, and you just go be it. And there's some truth to that, although I think it's pretty bizarre and out there. But there's some truth to that. But then, you know, I, went, remember I went to seminary and I went to reform Theological Seminary, which is a shrine to John Calvin. Uh, great school, though, and I enjoyed my experience there. But, but we were, and you would see aspects of very what we'd call hyper-Calvinism. John Calvin was a, a, a great thinker and a great Christian a man who lived over 500 years ago. And he, he created a systematic theology. And part of what his system was is that everything, God is so sovereign, so big, and so awesome. Everything that happens is because he planned it, he set it in motion, and it happened just by his sovereign will, everything. Some, I remember we'd be in class and we'd discuss, well, did I wear my shirt because, the shirt I wear because God chose before the foundations of the world that I would wear this pink shirt? And did God choose before the foundation of the world that I would roll its sleeves up because I would feel a little warm up here <laughs> speaking? You know, and you'd, you'd really, these are the kind of things we'd go through. And it gets kind of silly and gets kind of bizarre. And, and, and you can find Bible verses that will support both things because both are true. And what I think we need to realize is that you're not going to find a Bible verse or a statement in the Bible that's going to synthesize this conflict. But what we do have are stories. 
And I think we see in stories an incredible synthesis of a sovereign God who works with and works sovereignly within a world that has got real, honest, human contingencies at work. And I want to show you one story that I think does this. Again, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's, it's going to start actually in 1 Kings chapter 11. I don't want to read there with you, but 1 Kings chapter 11. And here's what's happening in Israel's history. Like I said, there was a, a time of the kingdom. The first king of Israel was Saul. Uh, his second king of Israel was a guy named David who did great. And then David had a son, and his son Solomon actually took the kingdom to an incredibly high level and was doing really great. Solomon was for a long time a terrific king. An incredible king. And Israel reached its peak as a nation, as a people under his leadership. But what happened, he, fell, he had, uh, uh, fell into sexual immorality. He became a narcissist. He got into himself a lot. And late in his life, he just, things began to fade. And he, uh, he you know, God saw this going on. God raised up enemies. And uh, there was one guy that Solomon really had some tension with, and it was a guy named Jeroboam. And this is what happens when you're a narcissist and things go bad. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's top guys. And Jeroboam was in charge of, what's, of the labor force of Israel. And this took a really talented guy. He had to go out and he would basically uh, get people in Israel, the workers, to work for free on different government projects. They may work a day a week. They may work two days a week. They may give a week out of a month. Whatever he did, it he would basically schedule, and more importantly, he would motivate and inspire the workforce of Israel to work on government projects for free. They would dedicate their time to it. And that's what his job was, and he was great at it. And Jeroboam was, was doing a great job, but you know, he and the king got, had kind of a rift. I think the king got overly into all his building projects. Jeroboam was kind of like, hey, that's too much. We, we don't know for sure what was happening, but there was a rift between them. And Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam goes and he runs to Egypt. Now, while he's fleeing from Solomon and going to Egypt, there's a prophet. And I think he pronounced his name Ahijah. Ahijah the prophet meets Jeroboam on the road fleeing to Egypt. And he stops him. And Ahijah takes his cloak off, his coat, and he rips it into 12 pieces. Now, if he were uh, an American prophet in this day, he would have ripped it into 50 pieces. Israel had 12 tribes, 12 territories, which were like 12 states. And so he takes it and he rips it into 12 pieces, symbolic of, of the nation of Israel. And then he gives Jeroboam 10 of them. And he tells him this. He said, God's done with this. God's tired of what Solomon's going through, what he's doing. In your lifetime, God is going to take Israel and he's going to split the nation in half. And the ten kingdoms that were actually to the north were going to retain the name Israel and Jeroboam was going to become their king. But there were going to be two, two of the territories, one Judah and another Benjamin that were in the south, were going to remain and they were going to change the name to Judah. In fact, when the word, the, the, the term Jew came from when the Jews were in exile, um, they were Judahites. And instead of saying Judahites, because it's too many syllables, they just said Jews. That's literally how that came about. 
So this is what happened. This split's happening. So this is a time just before the split. Aegis, the prophet's telling him, hey, this is what's going to happen. And so Jeroboam, and, and he tells Jeroboam when he's doing this, he said, look, if you will, if you will follow the Lord, if you will do what David did, if you'll have a good heart before God, you will have a kingdom, and this nation you're building will be like King David. You'll be remembered forever as a great king, and you'll have a dynastic kingdom that you rule over that will go for generation and generation and generation. So that's what God told Jeroboam. Now, here's what happens. He goes, and he's in Egypt, and then Rehoboam becomes king. Solomon dies, and Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, not Jeroboam, Rehoboam. And so he puts him in charge, and Rehoboam's a young guy, and he doesn't know what to do. So he he's, goes to his old counselors, older men, and he says, what should we do? And they said, hey, look, your dad overworked everybody. You need to cut taxes. You need to give people a little bit more of a break, and you just need to lay off it a little bit. They need more of their time, and they need more of their money. They need less of government projects. They, need, they just need less of us right now. That's what the older guys told him. But then Rehoboam goes to his young friends, the guys he grew up with in prep school, his fraternity brothers, young guys. Now, let me say this to all the young people here, all the young men here. I want to give you a very valuable lesson. The the place you are most likely to make the poorest decisions you are is with a group of your friends where there's no girls around or no older people around. A group of young men together are very likely to do the absolute most stupidest things you will ever do in your life. Is that true? Older men tell them, do something. It is very unlikely anything good is going to come out of that. And and another lesson is this. You don't go to your friends for advice. You play Fortnite with your friends. You go to older men for advice. Your your friends are as dumb as you. There's absolutely no reason to believe another 14 or 18 or 19-year-old knows anything more about life than you do. I'm very serious about this in a way. I've raised two boys. It just doesn't work real well uh, when a group of guys, but this is what Rehoboam does. He goes to his young boys, and they're like, man, and they make kind of a vulgar gesture. The New Testament writes it a little nicer uh, than what it's actually said, but he basically t- kind of downs his dad, uh, and then he, he, he says, man, my dad would, would, would scourge him with whips. I'm going to scourge him with scorpions. Scorpions were a, a whip that was made with copper strands and metal pieces, just a brutal instrument. And so three days later, he gets the people together, and he says, hey, look, I know you've asked for a break. I know you've asked for less taxes. He says, you know what? And he makes this statement, this cocky, arrogant statement about how my dad did it this way. I'm even tougher. The people go away. And then he sends his new secretary of labor out to get the people to come do these work projects. And guess what they do? They take the guy and they stone him to death. Now, That's a clue that you're having a problem in your kingdom. Things are not going well. So Rehoboam hightails it out of that territory, and he goes back to his home territory of Judah. And 
and there's a, they split. He basically gets Judah and Benjamin to rally around him. The other 10, Jeroboam comes in and begins to really rally all the other states together. And they're about to have a civil war. And a prophet comes to Rehoboam and he says, listen, don't go out there and fight because this was God's will. This was the sovereignty of God in action. So Rehoboam decided not to try it. Jeroboam, and so they had a, a split of the two kingdoms. So that's what you have right now. You have in the north, you have 10 states under the leadership of a guy named Jeroboam. In the south, you have Judah and Benjamin under the leadership. They changed their name to Judah under the leadership now of a guy named Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So here's what happens. Are you guys with me still? Jeroboam is in the northern kingdom, and they're supposed to go worship in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. And he goes, oh, man, if I start letting them do that, they'll start becoming, want to become a nation together again. They'll forget about me. They'll kill me. I'll be done. So what he does is he puts a golden calf at a, at a city called Bethel, which is real near the border to, uh, to this kingdom. And then he puts one in the very north in a city called Dan. He sets up two shrines, and he makes it to a false god. And he literally says, just like Aaron did when the Israelites were uh, in the Ten Commandments, he said, these are your gods. And he made two golden calves. Same thing. And so they're doing this worship, and he builds these temples, and he builds this altar, and he changes the days when the, the, the religious ceremonies are. And he just completely invents his own pagan religion. And so one day they're having their pagan festival and they're having an altar and they're making offerings and burning incense and they're doing all this ungodly pagan stuff at this religious ceremony. And it comes to chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. Let me read this to you. So this is going on. Jeroboam in the northern kingdom is having this religious festival, this pagan religion festival in God's land. Verse 1 says, By the word of the Lord, a man of God from Judah came to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Here's what he said. Altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born in the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priest of the high places who make offerings here. And human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. He said, this is a sign that the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. So here's what happens. There's this altar and the king is making a sacrifice there and there's all these ashes that have accumulated on this altar. And while he's doing this and this pagan thing is going on, this young man who's a prophet comes in and he starts screaming at the altar. And he says, altar, altar, you know, there's, there's a son named Jeremiah, Josiah who's going to be born. And, he, and when he's born, you know, the bones of, the, of all these false prophets around here are going to be burned right here. And then the altar splits. He, he says, the altar, and he says, this is a sign, the altar is going to split. And then it splits. And, and the, the king, if you read the story, Jeroboam pointed at the guy and he said, seize him. Arrest him, you know, take him away. And when he did that, guess what happened? His hand shriveled up. And he freaked out, which who wouldn't? 
It's like, oh, my God, my hand is, is. and so when he, then, he, then he's sitting there with a shriveled hand. And then the altar actually does split in half, and the ashes are poured out. He's like, oh, man, this is the real deal. So then he looks at the young man. He says, will you pray for me that my hand will get healed? So the young guy goes, sure. And he prays for him, and his hand gets back healed. And then he looks at the guy, and he goes, hey, can you come eat dinner with me? The king's asking him to eat dinner, and the young man says something. This is an odd story. The young man says, no, I can't, because God told me to come here, say this, go immediately home, don't stop to talk to anybody. Just, I'm supposed to come here, give this, deliver this word, and then i got to go back to my home immediately. Don't stop anywhere. And the king's like, oh, okay. So he goes. He's going back. As he's going back, there's this old prophet. He's kind of a bad prophet. And he has some sons who come to him and say, man, you will not believe what happened today. At this, you know, this, and he tells them a story. So the old prophet goes, man, i got to meet that young man. So he goes out and he finds this young man while he's on the road back to his home riding a donkey. And he says, hey, will you come eat some, have some bread and water with me? And the young man says, this, tells him the same thing he told the king. Hey, I can't. I've got, God told me to come deliver this word and go immediately back home. Don't stop at all. And the guy goes, well, the old prophet lies to him. And he says, well, an angel appeared to me. And the angel told me to tell you to come eat food with me. And the guy goes, oh, okay. And he goes with him. And so while they're eating, they're eating bread and drinking water and talking about whatever, um, the old prophet who had lied to him gets a real word from God. And he looks at the young man and he says, young man, God told you to come straight home and you didn't do it. And you're going to die on the way home. You know, that's kind of a downer. And so the guy goes, okay, yeah, let me enjoy my last. It literally was his last supper. He eats it, and then he goes on his road. And on the road, he's on his donkey. A lion jumps and attacks and kills him. Doesn't touch the donkey. Doesn't maul his body. Just kills him. And, and, and the prophet hears about it. And so the prophet goes. The old prophet feels bad, and he goes and he finds him. And literally he sees his donkey there and his dead body there, and the lion's just sitting there. And so they go and they get his body, and they don't know where he's from. They don't know his name. They don't know anything about him. So the prophet takes him, and they give him a formal burial, and he actually places him. And the old prophet says this, and this is very important. He says, place him in my tomb. And when I die, I want to be buried right beside him. And so they did that. They placed him in his tomb, and they wrote on a scroll the story of this young prophet. How he had come from Judah, how he had prophesied on the altar that this king named Josiah would be born and he was going to burn the bones of the false prophets on these altars. And they took the scroll, they rolled it up, buried him with it, and that was it. Like, that's a strange story. Is, is everybody here getting how strange a story that is? Very strange story. Just odd. It's weird. It's, you know, what's it about? And so that's what's going on here. And then. We flip ahead, and let me give you a little bit of what's going on. This is 300 years later. If you want to turn your Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. We'll get to this in a second. So here's what's happening. Literally, it's 291 years that's going by. And there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And here's what's going on in Israel. 
After that warning from that prophet, Jeroboam continued his bad ways. And here's what was going on. Uh, they began to build shrines everywhere to Syrophoenician gods, to a god named Moloch. There was a god named Asherah, a goddess, which was a, a goddess which promoted sexual license and perversion. There was a god of Baal, which was a huge Canaanite god. There were, there were just gods in idolatry went everywhere. Divination, the worship of stars. They began to offer up their children to be sacrificed. All these horrific things were going on under Jeroboam's reign. They literally took the temple, uh, and it, had, it was a big, huge temple, and they had all other gods and all other deities being worshipped alongside the Lord. They actually had, in part of these pagan rituals, a lot of them were promoting sexual immorality and sexual impurity. So you would have, they would have rooms for prostitutes in the temple. They had rooms for male prostitutes in the temple. Homosexuality, sexual perversion, abuse of all these things are, are going on. In the, could you imagine this? Could you imagine a church, a big, huge, opulent church, having this kind of stuff going on in it? Literally, during the reign of Manasseh, who reigned 55 years, and he was uh, 60 years before this, We'll get to, but he literally took the Bible and hid it. Just got it out of it. Just took the, the whole law. They just put it away. They hid it away. No one even, they were not literally reading the, the Torah, the law in Israel, if you can believe that, for 60, 70 years. And this is a state, and this went on for, for this is set 291 years from our time, from 1719 until now. This is what that would be. Then we come to 2 Kings chapter 22. What does it say in verse 1? Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkak. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, followed the, completely the ways of his father David, not turning to the right or the left. So here's what's happening. In the midst of all this turning away from the Lord, all this unimaginable stuff going on, this eight-year-old boy becomes king, and he's got a good heart. I would infer from that that maybe his mother raised him in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord despite the king. And then he becomes 18 years old. And at 18 years old, he gets a great idea as king. He's like, we need to rebuild the temple. We need to clean it up. We need to, to renovate it and model it. It just needs some renovation, some upkeep. And so he sends a group in to do that. And they go in, and they're doing this re renovating, they're painting it, they're probably they're doing whatever, you know, fixing things that need to be fixed, and they're down. And he goes down in the basement they go to, to see what's going on down there, probably to check the foundation. And while they're down there, this guy finds the book of the law. The book of Deuteronomy is literally the book he found. Seventy years, no one had read from this. Seventy years. And they take it to Josiah, and Josiah's like, huh, read it to me. And he reads it. And Josiah sits there, and he is like, oh, my God. What have we done to our God? 
how have we misrepresented our God? And he, he does something. He took his robes and actually tore them, which was a sign of repentance. And he began to repent and mourn. He gathered the people together, and they read the law together. And he said, man, we've got to get right. He called the people to repentance. And then Josiah begins to clean up Israel. And Josiah goes and he sends guys out, his soldiers out, and they take every, every high place, every place where there was false worship. You know what they did? They tore them down. Every idol they smashed. All the false prophets, all the faults they begin to kill and execute. And he, he is just going on this ravage rampage to cleanse his land of all this sin and of all this idolatry and all this impurity. And then he, he looks to the mountains as he's doing all this in the middle of his campaign, and he sees these, some of the mountains are the graveyards of the false prophets where they were buried, all the prophets. And he says, go. And they go, and they begin to open up these tombs, and they begin to take the bones of these false prophets and burn them on their altars just to desecrate them. And they're doing that. And if it was a false prophet, they'd find out what the guy was for. If it was a good prophet, they left their bones there, obviously, but the False prophets, they take their bones out and they burn them and grind them into dust. And then we come to chapter 23, verse 16. And it says this, Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were on the hillside, and that he had, had the bones removed from them, and he burned them on the altar to defile it, in accordance with the word of the Lord, proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. Verse 17, then the king asked, who is that tombstone? The people said, it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done. Imagine what it would have been like to have been this young man, this young king. And he is doing this act out of passion and love for God and love for his people. And he comes to this tomb and he reads a 300-year-old prophecy. And his name is written in that book. And the things he has done are written in that book. What a powerful moment that would have been. Now, What's the takeaway of this? How do we really apply this to our lives? And I want to just say a couple things here real quick in closing. That, that you know, Again, I cannot tell you, and nobody can, the relationship between how important your decisions and my decisions are, how important contingency is, and yet there's a God who's sovereign. But story can tell us that. It's more illustrated than articulated. It's more experienced than, than a form formulated, formulated out. But when we look to the Bible, we see this at work. You know, we, we see it at work in so many lives. You know, we see it at work in the life of Joseph. Joseph had a destiny, something God had told him he wanted to do in his life. When things got bad, we, we, when we read his story, we realize Joseph's decisions were crucial. Making Right decisions for him was crucial to end up where God wanted him to end up. 
Or we can read a story of a guy like Samson who made a lot of bad decisions. Yet, he really had a day where he owned who he was. He owned what he had done. And in the end, through the mess he had made of his life, God still used him exactly in the fashion he wanted to use him. He raised him up to use him. We see this all throughout the Bible. There is a relationship, and we can see it in this story. Jeroboam, God told him, hey, if you will, I'm going to make you a great king. He didn't do it. We see other times where another story of of a young king, Josiah, who is just following his heart, and he actually is following the preordained plan of God for his life. He's acting out really divine destiny. And so what I want to say to, to, to you and me in our lives is uh, there's, a, there's a powerful verse in this story of, of Josiah when, he's, when, when all this is going on in his life. God tells him, you, and he described him this way, you, when you saw what was wrong, you had a humble heart and you were responsive to the Lord. I want to say this to you, every one of us, if the Bible's true, there's a plan God has for you. Psalm says that the numbers of your days are ordered by God. There's a plan. There really is something God wants to work out in your life. Your life matters. Your decisions matter. Things are contingent that are, that are eternal on the decisions you and I make. They may seem like small decisions, but, they're, 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 but that, that you and I do what God wants us to do is important. But there's something bigger. There is a sovereign God who is working beyond us to fulfill his purposes in your life. And again, I don't know how these two are married, but I know they are. And I do know as you and I walk with him, as you and I walk and step with him, we will literally see the plan and the purposes of God for our lives, the why of our life really get worked out. In an incredible way. I want to close you with a thought. There's a, a professor I had when I was at RTS who was such a great guy, and he, he used to say this, this, he would say it this way to really help clarify this thing. He said, In life, you make the first step, God takes the second step. And the third step is that you realize it was actually God who took the first step. That's how life works. That's how the the symphony of your life can be worked out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a great and you are an awesome and you are a brilliant God. We thank you that our existence is literally not happenstance. It is not random. It is absurd to think that. We see how incredibly organized and interdependent our different parts of our body and our being are and we just we thank you to be a part of this incredible thing called life and history and to know you in it and to walk with you in it is an incredible privilege that I pray we'd all would treasure and value to the utmost and um, I pray that Lord as we just wrestle with these things for our own life you know we can there's a trying to formulate this Try to put it down and capture it in a formula is not going to happen. But to know and have a sense of two things working together, that, that our decisions matter. 
and that outcomes are contingent on what we do, yet you are sovereign. And ultimately, you are the one who works. This is your world. History belongs to you. You created it. And, and we are just a partner and a part of what you're doing. Help us to really live our lives in the light of that awesome reality, uh, to have hearts that are responsive and humble and yielded to you as we, as we go through this journey here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.